0: What I have lost a little bit is my confidence. I think maybe when you're younger as an entrepreneur, you have a certain sort of naivety, which is incredibly useful because you kind of can plow into new projects really without too much sort of research. And, you know, the naysayers are, um, if you try to sort of dampen your enthusiasm, are sort of battered to the side because you're so keen to progress and I guess maybe as I've got older and I've been quite ill and of course we've had to close a few stores in the UK we're still on 88 stores and we are opening door next week which is very exciting but what I have found is that maybe I'm uh, leading with a little bit more data these days and a little bit less gut instinct although you've got to still put the two together but I'm possibly more cautious than I was in the past.
1: Hi there. We return to retail for this episode of Leading. Previously, I've talked to bosses from Marks & Spencer, Fairtrade and pharmacy to You about fickle fashion, COVID closures, tight margins and online competition. This time, my guest is Laura Tennyson. She's founder and CEO of Jojo Mammon Baby, the children's clothing, gifts and maternity wear chain, which every high street wants to feature. The business now stretches to 88 shops, 900 employees, and an annual turnover of £70 million. We talk about the life-changing car accident that led to Laura's foundation of the business in 1993, rolling up her sleeves to join her warehouse workers during the COVID pandemic, the mentorship she received in the early days from Laura Ashley and Body Shop's Anita Roddick, and the importance of supporting fellow entrepreneurs, including through the Everywoman platform. It's a good episode and addition to The Leading File, which now features more than 60 leaders from business, charity, the arts, technology, and sport sharing their stories. Please take a listen and do let me know what you think. Laura, thank you so much for joining me to talk today. The first thing that... I thought of when I looked at your story, your leadership story was the point on longevity, you know, 28 years now leading your company. And I will go back to the start, but I'm really interested as you, that longstanding leader today, where does the motivation come from? How do you get out of bed every morning and, and, and face these new challenges?
0: So actually, the question you really should be asking me is how do I get to bed, not how do I get up in the morning? Because there is always so much to do. And I guess I'm never satisfied unless I feel that we're doing things to the best of our ability. I am to a certain degree a perfectionist, but also I'm actually... Myself, I'm a jack of all trades, but I kind of expect that the things we do, the products we make, the services we offer, they've got to be as good as we can possibly get. And of course, as we all know, in this ever changing digital world, uh, things progress very quickly. So, no sooner have you sort of caught up with one area, you've got to either reinvent yourself or you've got to um, progress, you've got to redesign a website you've got to add to your product range. So there is never enough time in the day to do everything I'd like to do. And I think I've accepted in life that you've just got to enjoy the journey because we'll never reach the top of that mountain.
1: Having looked at a lot of founders and and talked to them and written about their stories, I observed that sometimes the biggest challenge for a founder is to know when to pass on the reins to um, let someone else have a go or something. And what's fascinating about what you've done with Jojo Mad Mom Baby is, you have taken it from an absolute seedling into into the you know the big brand that it is today. Tell me a little bit about that because the boss of that startup needs to be a very different person to to the boss of what you've got today, surely.
0: I've got years and years of experience, and that's the only difference, but actually uh, my ethics, my mission, my drive are exactly the same. What I have now that I didn't have all those years ago, is I have the expertise of a really amazing team behind me. So in so many ways, it's easier to do my job well now than it was when I relied on myself for absolutely everything. started with two part-time members of staff. So um, our team uh, in in the current uh, year is uh, nearly 900 people, of which many of them have worked with us long term. And actually, I've uh, proved on several occasions in the last couple of years that um, they can run the business pretty well without me. So what am I now? I'm the CEO. I'm the leader. But more than anything, actually, I'm the troubleshooter. So when we have a problem, my job is to go in and pick up the pieces and to help people to get over whatever that issue is in whichever part of the company that uh, I'm needed.
1: And tell me, so we can get our arms around the company now, you said 900 people, how many stores, a rough idea of of revenue?
0: We've got um, about 88 stores and we're currently trading around about 55% online and 45% retail. And uh, we turn over about 70 million. So we're kind of around, you know, we're a nice sort of mid-sized company where we can still have quite a good handle on everything we do. But, you know, we're certainly not a small company anymore. That's for sure.
1: It's great that you can admit because I think some founders sometimes their mistake can be thinking that it would all fall apart if they didn't turn up every day. So it's quite refreshing for you to say that it does work when, when I'm not there. So I'm really interested in if the machine is well oiled and, th- and things are happening, then uh, how do you arrange yourself? How do you spend your day?
0: I mean, the the reason I know that we work quite well without me is unfortunately because I've had a couple of uh, bouts of serious illness in the last couple of years, COVID being one of them. And just before COVID, I had a a couple of years before COVID, I had a a, a nasty bout of sepsis, which I think has about a a sort of 30% mortality rate. So I'm feeling quite lucky that I got through those two. Um, And uh, what I find is that I guess I'm, I'm just so passionate about doing things as well as possible I like to come in and uh, get involved in the new business and I like to get involved in um, helping, as I say, you know we've got, a, we've, got a, we've got a great board of directors, but human beings have ups and downs and uh, whether it's someone who may be on maternity leave or whether its someone who has a, a, an aging parent that's uh, going through a bad period, or um, they have a, a dog that's ill, everyone needs support. So the great thing about being a CEO is that you are there, in my opinion, you are there to support your team, your board of directors, and step in. And the advantage of being an owner manager and a, you know, an entrepreneur owner is that I do know most parts of the business with some level of sort of authenticity I haven't thank god ever had to step into the FD's role because that would probably be my worst nightmare <laughs> um, or the commercial director's role but uh, certainly on the creative side or the operational side I know what to do and I think that's really where I see myself as, as a managing director is being a support to the rest of the
1: board. I didn't know about the sepsis or the Covid so that sounds terrible and, and of course that there's, that is no way to to test out what the business is like without you, of course. But it's good to see that you're recovered. Is that what you would classify as your biggest leadership challenge? Sort of, you know, when when illness takes you away from the business, or are there a lot of things in your intray right now that you you see as the ne- the next mountain to climb? I think is the analogy you use.
0: Funny that you ask that because when I look back on being seriously ill in a weird way it was like the most incredible sense of release because i was too ill to have that sense of responsibility that drives me all day and most of the night sometimes so actually i i do look back on those times when i was lying in bed as a a bit of a holiday. And, um, and (laughs) of course, not so nice for my family and friends who were concerned about me. But for me, it was great to be able to sort of lie there in your little cocoon and have a complete rest from mental exhaustion and mental stress of running a business. But, no, I think probably my biggest challenge to date has to be those first few months of trading through COVID and I would be very surprised if there wasn't a hands-on director, particularly who works closely with the operational side of a business, who doesn't feel a slight sense of sort of PTSD when you look back on those first few months. We, we kind of went into the very early stages of COVID feeling incredibly responsible for our customer base, particularly our pregnant customers, because we felt that whilst we're not a chemist, we do have an awful lot of newborn essentials that could be anything from uh, scratch mitts, to stop your little newborn uh, cutting their face when they're asleep, to nail clippers, you know, and all those little items. Actually, when you have a newborn baby and they do scratch their face in the night and you have this sort of incredible sense of anxiety that you're being a bad parent and how are you going to solve the problem, that's when people turn to Jojo. So we did keep our stores open um, or trading from the door as much as we could during the lockdowns. But um, during those first few weeks of lockdown, the bit that I felt very concerned about were my warehouse operatives almost everyone else worked from home as quickly as we could feasibly get them working from home but our warehouse operatives couldn't our mail order sales quadrupled at periods. And uh, of course, our retail sales uh, diminished to nothing for for a great proportion of that year. But our online sales and the demand from our customers to get those parcels in as quickly as possible was really quite significant. So during that period, I kind of felt that it was absolutely unacceptable for me not to work alongside my warehouse uh, operatives. And I stepped into the warehouse and worked alongside them, packing parcels, picking parcels, and really rallying the troops to get those parcels out the door. Of course, we put everyone who was vulnerable on furlough. So we went from having about 120 operatives to around about 40 very quickly, but since we've been trading so long. So um, we had a lot of um, temporary staff. We recruited amongst people who worked in, in festivals and uh, we recruited amongst uh, certainly a, a lot of young students who'd been sent home from university. Um, but it was a very, very exhausting time. And that kind of went on for about seven or nine months of solid work, you know. I felt that it was my duty to work alongside my teams and I really didn't want them to do anything that I wasn't prepared to do myself and we genuinely didn't know how dangerous it was so I look back on those early days of COVID and feel that that was an extraordinary challenge that not just I went through but all those teams I will never ever forget and you know belittle how humbling it was that those teams who really volunteered to work through that period um, and how brave they were really.
1: It's very interesting to hear you say that and you threw yourself into the warehouse yourself. I think there was a there's a brief time when COVID started, I detected that some CEOs were sending staff home thinking, uh, you know, how how do I make sure they're as productive at home as they are um, in the office? But then I think the really enlightened leaders, and I think I definitely put you in that category, is, is it wasn't at all about that. It was duty of care that came to the fore, the leader's responsibility to the people on your payroll to make sure they could operate in a safe environment
0: the very first day that covid became a sort of reality we asked all our teams to come into to the site and we talked to them outside this was of course in march 2020 and we interviewed them individually and worked out who had vulnerable members of their family who had vulnerable health issues themselves who, who were of a certain age. And then at that stage, we basically asked people to volunteer to carry on working. And uh, together, we reorganized the warehouse, moved everything out, did one-way systems, set up the sanitation points, et cetera. And actually we made it as safe as we possibly could. And we traded all the way through, working two shifts, right the way through, and let the whole of the dangerous part of the pandemic or the aggressive part of the pandemic and thank god we didn't have a single breakout in the office of course you know we had some tragedies with people's parents um get, getting sick but on the whole we did everything possible and yeah i think i couldn't couldn't have envisaged any other option in order to get our parcels out to our customers we had to keep going but i just do feel that it was a it was a great ask, and i couldn't make anyone come to work we had to ask them where they prepared to come to work and as i say I'm humbled and um, and grateful that so many people did.
1: And how long were you out of action for?
0: Oh well, the ironic thing was, I worked alongside my warehouse operatives all the way from March right up until Christmas, working up to up to sort of eighteen-hour days occasionally, and got all the way through. Went home for Christmas because my family live in London. And I'd been living in my farm in Wales, but my, my sort of family house is in London. My student son gave it to me the day I got home for Christmas. <laughs> so, you know, it's just kind of sods law, isn't it? So um, he he felt very guilty. And and maybe that's why I had such a nice time having COVID, because I had both my boys feeling incredibly guilty and waiting on me hand and foot for uh, about five weeks while I was laid low.
1: It's interesting to hear you talk, because looking at what you said in interviews, Laura, that I think you take your responsibility as a job creator very seriously and i'm interested having gone through those months with your staff in this way through through covid what do you take forward from that how are you leading differently now we are supposedly getting back to normal with in inverted commas
0: it's a difficult one because you know you could call me old school but i do like human communication whilst we have adopted a hybrid work environment for all our office teams and were encouraging them to come into the office two to three days a week i'm very worried about younger generation and particularly as a mother with two young adult children who are just sort of starting in the workplace now i am really worried i like having open plan offices I like to be incredibly trusting of my teams. I show them the figures, that even our with, our with our store teams. We like you to understand the P&L for each store. When you're all working remotely in your little bubbles, you, yes, you can be productive in your little bubble. And absolutely, the days that I do work from home now, my god, do I get things done. You know, if I'm writing a, a press release, writing a business plan, that's Fantastic situation, but when I'm trying to engage new people, I want them in the office, I want to work together, and so, yeah, it's not very popular with everyone, but I am very scared for the younger generation, middle managers older directors, those with families. You know, We have country houses. I have a lovely time when I work from home from my farm. I can do that in the two hour commute to my office in South Wales. In London, I'm luckier. I'm five minutes bicycle ride from my office and uh, I do come down here. In fact, the only days I work from home when I'm in London is to keep my 25 year old son company because I'm very concerned that he spends far too much time on his own because his company is encouraging their employees to stay home as much as possible. And I just think it's unhealthy. So I think a hybrid workforce is great, but I think for the younger generation, coming into the office every day is better.
1: There seems to be theory that as competitive spirits take hold again, there is a theory that if, if you want to get on, get to the office, um, get close to the boss, there is a halo effect to being in the office next to you, Laura, because you can pop your head out of the door and say, can someone just look into that, please? And that, that is the way to to build and grow a career.
0: I couldn't agree more. From my perspective, those who are coming into the office are visible. But having said that, that's always been the case. I used to be very concerned about people who worked in the office wearing headphones, listening to music, which people do. And I used to say, if you're wearing headphones and listening to music, you're missing out. Yes, you may be concentrating on your graphic design. You may be concentrating on uh, your your figures, uh, your spreadsheets. But actually, you're missing out on all that nuance and it's a nuance about business that teaches you to get to the next level and to grow and to learn about other areas of the company. And I've always tried to encourage people to become multi-trained. I would like my uh, marketing and retail team to come down to the warehouse. It's so important that the product designers actually come and pick the parcels to see how the packaging they're designing reacts when it's going through the pick pack dispatch process. You know, it's pointless looking at it later, so we try to take people out of different areas. And it's not just sort of packing on you know on the checkout desk at Christmas to kind of you know show willing as a PR stunt. It's about really learning on the job. I cannot walk into a store without coming out with a sort of 20 point to-do list. I can't walk around the warehouse without thinking about a way we can improve efficiency or come up with a new idea for warehouse pick routes or something like that. So I think it's really important that others in the business do learn instead of being siloed into one area. Now, if you take a job as a marketing digital assistant and that's all you ever want to do for the rest of your life, then carry on work from home. That's absolutely fine because you can do that. You can do that from home. You don't need to learn your team. You're just going to do your one job and concentrate on it. But if you're looking at um, progressing and having a a sort of, in, in my opinion, a more varied work life, you know, maybe being more interested, Then I think uh, getting getting out and about and getting into different parts of the company is important. Having said that, we're all trying to travel less for work as well. And uh, pre-COVID, I was commuting to America a lot of the time. Um, And thankfully, actually, due to COVID, we closed down our American branch. And I'm actually delighted from a personal perspective. It's really sad about the losses, the jobs that we had to make redundant in America and and the losses that we suffered by closing.
1: So I was going to ask how your leadership has changed, uh, you know, because of COVID or in recent years. And actually, if, if I compare that, what you've said now with what I've seen in interviews over the years, I think it's, as you said at the top, you're absolutely still all over it. Making lists, you are details boss.
0: Yes I think the probably what I would say and with with a caveat that I'm not sure it matters anymore because of the size of the company but I think what I have lost a little bit is my confidence and my sense of I think maybe when you're younger as an entrepreneur you have a certain sort of naivety, which is incredibly useful because you kind of can plow into new projects really without too much sort of research. And, you know, the naysayers are, if um, you try to sort of dampen your enthusiasm, are sort of batted to the side because you're so keen to progress. And I guess maybe as I've got older and I've been quite ill and, uh, you know, we, we have had the setback of the American business during covid And of course, uh, we've had to close a few stores in the UK. We're still on 88 stores and we are open next uh, next week, which is very exciting. But um, I think what I have found is that maybe I'm uh, leading with a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more data these days and a little bit less gut instinct, although you've got to still put the two together. But I'm possibly more cautious than I was in the past
1: that's really interesting and and it's interesting to hear you you say that because so often the boss doesn't talk about the the caution that they feel so it's it's really interesting how you you marry that with the data we've talked all about the people and so on but you've picked a really really tough sector to be in you know margins are tight competition is tight we could talk all day about taxation you can be a good leader of your people but because of external pressures you can't always be the nice person at the top you will have to cut jobs over the years you'll have had to restructure you've talked about it with the state, so that's quite something to reconcile isn't it
0: oh completely and uh i i I literally have sleepless nights in the in the early stages of covid when we did make a, a handful i think we made less than 10 people redundant but we did make some middle managers redundant to cut our overheads i actually considered setting up a new business just to offer them alternative employment really because it it preyed on me so badly absolutely loathe it we i've spent my life growing things developing things i'm a projects person so when you see things recede it's absolute agony we've always tried to be open with our teams And we've explained to them that, uh, you know, sometimes we have to make tough decisions. But ultimately, our goal is to maintain the longevity of the business. We are a cash rich business. We have been forever. I have never raped the company of funds to have been very frugal as an, an owner manager. And I have always reinvested to build the business for longevity, because I feel that that is the best chance that we have of maintaining those jobs and creating more ethical employment. I I believe so strongly in trade, not aid. And, you know, with with the fashion company, you are working with developing nations. Um, You know, it it, it is unfortunately one of the things that uh, in our sort of mid-market area, We do need a reasonably low labour cost. So we're working with developing nations, but we can provide good ethical employment. We can take trouble to audit our factories. We can make sure that uh, we do everything possible to be ethical in environment and environmentally responsible in our production methods. Now, we do that because we know that if we build trust in the brand, we will encourage our teams to want to carry on working here, they'll be proud of what they do. But also, I think nowadays, it permeates through to the customer years ago, We didn't actually tell our customer yes we were making our clothing out of recycled plastic bottles because it wasn't fashionable. We did it because we wanted to offset all our plastic production in the company and it just seemed a logical way of saving plastic from landfill. Of course, you know, 30 years on and it's now become quite a sort of uh, topical subject and uh, we're we're streets ahead of the competition, which is a, a useful position to be in. But on the whole, we do things because we believe in what we're doing and I've got a very long-serving board of directors who are completely committed to actually in many cases they could earn more money elsewhere but they want to do the, the things the Jojo way and the Jojo way is to do them properly so we're together it's a team
1: when was the first time you were in charge of people when were you first the boss and what did you learn from that
0: gosh I mean you know I've been entrepreneurial since since birth, I think. I do tend to believe that it is nature, not nurture. It's a characteristic. As a really quite a young child, I would pick fruit in my parents' garden and sell it to uh, passing traffic at the end of our drive. And uh, I think my brother, one of my brothers, would be my helper. So was he my first team member? I think he would say I was a very bossy younger sister. But uh, whether that means uh, whether that means that's the first time I was leading someone, I don't know. Um, we also used to argue quite a bit. But no, seriously, my first or my first proper business was running a small building company in in Brittany, in France, which is where I got to to love uh, the great outdoors and and the Breton uh, children's wear and the kind of. Proper outdoor rainwear that meant your kids could play on the beach, whatever the weather. And when I was in Brittany, things I wanted to do, and again, it sort of boiled back down to that sort of ethical employment. I didn't want to bring over to France British builders, which a lot of the sort of uh, small scale British property agents or property sort of developers were were bringing their own teams. They were even bringing their own supplies from B and Q, partly because they didn't speak French. I was fortunate enough to have been uh, spent part of my childhood in Belgium, so I spoke French. But my 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 whole thing of integrating into the local community and to be trusted by the local community was to employ the local builders. So there I was, this young sort of twenty uh, five year old a British girl with a team of about 20 very grumpy middle-aged Breton builders who um, had never been bossed around by a girl before. And, you know, they used to laugh and joke, but actually I proved them wrong. Their sexism sort of uh, evaporated to dust when they saw that I was efficient and I brought the work in and they got paid on time. So I think it was very, actually, it was very easy to prove by working hard that you can deliver. And actually in those days, being a female project manager, in a um, rural Breton building company was fairly unusual. And uh, I certainly smashed, um, if there was a glass ceiling, I smashed that one pretty quickly by just proving myself. And we became great friends. They're still friends to this day, some of them.
1: Looking at your early life and the in the CV and so on, there have been elements where you've you know done it your way. You, you say you were entrepreneurial very early. I don't think you wanted to go to university. You did a big tour of Asia, picked up lots of ideas and did an apprenticeship at, at Aquascutum as a way into the fashion world. I'm wondering why you did the building company. Why is it JoJo has been the one that's been so enduring and that has grown so much, do you think, as opposed to you aren't you know, leading one of France's top construction companies today?
0: Well, it's really interesting because I what I've done in life is I've actually put together all my different bits of knowledge and my, I guess, my different skill sets, and merge them into a retail company that can keep growing keep expanding so yeah you're absolutely right I started off with a sewing machine I didn't go to university uh, because I didn't get in the truth is I wasn't particularly academic and I certainly didn't work hard at school I always had a business on the side whilst I was at school and uh, as a result I didn't concentrate much of the trade I learned how to buy Fabrics, but I wanted to go back to the source. So I did travel in the Middle East. I bought amazing Damascus silk in, in, in Syria, um, obviously long before the war. And uh, I wanted to find out how things worked, how they were manufactured, because I felt that if I really understood the supply chain, I would have a better chance of selling with authenticity and really believing in the provenance of what I was working with. So, and I guess that's what I still do today. I fell into being a Breton builder as a bit of an accident. A friend had uh, uh, inherited 10,000 pounds and decided to go to France to see if she could buy a derelict cottage to do up, because even in those days, 10,000 pounds didn't buy you very much in this country. And I went along with her because I had, uh, by that stage, done up a, a, a flat of my own, which I'd, I'd bought and immediately rented out, because I couldn't afford to live in it. But I'd bought it and uh, and rented it out to some city boys whilst I continued to rent a much cheaper room down the road. But uh, this friend took me to Brittany. And, and and again, the the estate agent that shows around was just so inefficient, kind of um, just Showed us all the wrong type of things. It just seemed so obvious there was a gap in the market. So I set up a property agency and then a building agency to help British clients find what they wanted because I understood what they wanted. And then, having understood what they wanted, it just seemed easier to carry on with the business. And I sold that business as a going concern a couple of years later. But whilst I learned about the building trade, what I didn't realize was as a retailer, we have you know, 99, uh, well, at one stage we had 99 stores and a couple of office leases. So in fact, all that building trade knowledge has proved us an incredible stead because I can now walk into a sort of dusty old charity shop And I can do a building survey on the spot, put an offer in and, you know, we can be appointing solicitors in a couple of hours, whereas your average CEO of a retail company has to sort of bring in a great stream of professionals to get to that stage. So I think being a builder is an amazing skill and I would always encourage everyone to learn how to be a builder, how to um, trade currency and how to source directly yourself. So that was the other thing that my uh, nearly two years of wandering around Asia in that period when I sort of left school and uh, wasn't entirely sure what I was gonna do with my life has been so useful because it meant that I was never frightened of dealing with different cultures, of jumping on an airplane to go and find a new supplier. And in fact, you know, like all small businesses, when I launched, it was extremely difficult to get anyone to extend credit to me but also to make our minimum order quantities. I literally was making 50 pieces of a style. Now, as you know, um, uh, well, you probably know, but in the garment industry, making your minimum order quantities in factories are are, are generally sort of 1,000 to 3,000 pieces. Now, JoJo can do that now, but when we started, of course, we couldn't. But uh, I'd heard that Colombia was being supported by the um, EU or the, pre- the EC in those days as a GSP country, so general systems preference to encourage non-drugs trade. And I understood that the Colombians were really keen to get uh, into the garment industry in a long way. And um, the, the, the Colombians were really keen to promote their garment uh, industry, which they had, but it was small. And uh, as a result, I jumped on a flight to Colombia, uh, gone on an overnight bus to Cali, which is actually was in those days the cocaine producing capital of the world. But uh, I got them making baby grows and baby dresses. And my parents, who my father was a diplomat, and my mother was a very sort of officious diplomatic wife, was absolutely convinced that I would be a duped and you know all these baby grows would arrive with cocaine stuffed in their pockets. But uh, we traded very happily with the Colombians for a couple of years until our quantities got bigger and we can move closer to home.
1: Talking about your robings around Asia makes me think about Phil Knight and Nike. And it's, it's told very well at the beginning of the shoe dog story about how he you get comfortable with a different culture and you add to your expertise and and he was you know before they were making their own shoes they were importing from japan for many years i should mention it is always part of your story that uh, there was a terrible car accident 20 broken bones and the jojo vision came to you while you were lying in in a in a hospital bed
0: Maybe I'm eternally optimistic in life but I do think that adversity is obviously horrible and I'm very lucky in so many ways. I've survived a really nasty head-on collision but when I was lying in that hospital bed I had decided to sell the French business and I had a buyer all lined up. In fact I was on my way to the solicitors to sign off uh, part of the business um, but I I, I kind of woke up in hospital, having been air ambulance back from France, next to this young mom who had two small children. And she completely diverted my course. I'd been intending to go back into menswear, which had been the cottage industry I'd done before. And, uh, and she pushed me into children's wear, and of course, That tied in with my great love of the outdoors. I really hate being cooped up. So I like being outside in all weathers. And I love the way that the children played on the beach in all weathers. And at the same time, I was in my mid-20s and you know, friends were starting to have babies and they would say things to me like, oh no, we can't come out for a walk today because it's raining. And it would frustrate <laughs> me so much. And so I said, you know, this is going to be, this is just, we've got to stop this. We want our children to be outside all the time. The children are so much happier when they're out and about and, um, you know, get them properly togged up in a rain suit and some proper uh, wellies and, you know, all all these years later, everything that I believe in has come full circle. And I'm so proud of the fact that we are one of the biggest manufacturers of clothing made from uh, recycled plastic, our rainwear, our swimwear, our our polar fleece. It's all kind of, it just sort of makes sense. It's so, for me, that, that I guess my mantra in life is, let's just, let's just make it make sense.
1: You've set out your stall early on. I think there was only £50,000 of startup capital, and that's been it. So you're not selling off 20% here or 20% there. You've grown it very steadily and quite conservatively, as you say. But who's helped? Who who were the mentors and the advisors who you've turned to when there have been things that you haven't understood?
0: I'm a great believer in wearing your heart on your sleeve and asking questions. And if you need help, ask for it. And maybe nowadays it's so easy for people to ask for help and in fact you know unsolicited emails don't always get answered because it's just it's just too easy to to look up you know ceo of a business i still read my own emails but i'm afraid i don't answer every single one of them because i get so, i so you know i get so many now um but uh, in those days, um, I had a couple of, of mentors, you know, from afar, but actually I did have the guts to pick up the phone. So the two people, when I was young, when my father retired from the Foreign Office, we lived in South Wales. And of course, that's why our warehouse is in South Wales, because it was actually my, my parents' shed. The first uh, sort of grand name for a shed was our, our first warehouse. So Laura Ashley was there. And I remember um, picking up the phone to Bernard Ashley saying, you know, could I, could I have could I have some advice? I want, you know, I'm trying to start this small fashion company. And he said, uh, well, um, do you need to live back to London? And I said, yeah, I'd love to live back to London. And Bernard, and he lives, but they they, they lived further into Wales than, than we did. Bernard um, stopped uh, where my parents lived near Abergavenny, picked me up in his Rolls Royce. This must have been in sort of very late 80s, early 90s and uh, chatted to me all the way to London because I I would have taken the bus otherwise or or the train if I was feeling flush. And, um, And he actually offered me a job by the time we got to London, and I very politely declined because I wanted to be in London. And I wanted to do my own business, and I didn't want to work in Ma- Maidenhead. But but he gave me a lot of advice and was very friendly, and that's because I asked for help. And then the other person, of course, is Anita Roddick. Um, you know, God bless her. Anita Roddick was such a visionary, and from the sustainability side, you know, I just picked up so much, and I I just think we've all learned so much from her. But as a young entrepreneur. She was really the only, she was the only role model in sustainability that that I'd ever heard of. We didn't really know the term sustainable business practices in those days, environmental practices, uh, climate change didn't exist as a word. So actually having that um, from the very start, those two role models both women although it was it was bernard who actually helped me uh, in with advice in those early stages but they, they were both incredible and nowadays i do help as many people as i possibly can and i will almost always try and give someone some advice if they really want advice i ask them um, i have so little time that they have to come and walk the dog with me
1: presidential law isn't it come walk with me but i, I must ask on that because clearly you are paying it forward and i'm sure your inbox is full of people soliciting advice. And I think you you help as well through the Every Woman platform, which is there to help the next generation of, of female entrepreneurs fulfill their potential. How should we view a platform like Every Woman today? I suppose it has showed that there's great success to be had from helping the next generation of female entrepreneurs. But I wonder whether we're at the stage now where is it almost a shame that we do need a platform specifically for women?
0: I've been in touch with the uh, founders of Every Woman for my goodness, it must be, it must be 20 years, a long time anyway, very long time. And um, I think when they founded, it was absolutely essential. You know, it was really necessary. I remember going to meet my father for lunch at his club in St. James's and being told I had to go to the back door. And you know, that, I mean, I'm sure there are still gentlemen's clubs in 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 the West End who do that, or maybe not. It may be, I would have thought it's illegal. I don't know. I've never. I, I I don't go to that sort of place. But I just remember being quite horrified by it. And I do think that you know, sisterhood is a great thing, a great support. And I do. I I was very very proud at JoJo that uh, we were at one stage. I think the biggest British company with an all female board. And um, I actually found out that. When I did the um, B, when when I undertook the audit to become a certified B Corporation, I was astounded that we were marked down for having an all-female board, because, of course, it didn't show diversity. And I do strongly believe that, whilst there is a place for female forums, and I absolutely believe that um, we should champion each other we should support each other. We should encourage and mentor each other. I do believe that actually a more diverse working environment is healthier. And I've struggled over the years to encourage men to come and join us at JoJo, just because you know it is the nature of a, a mother and baby brand that um, it has in the past been more appealing to uh, women, and and maybe men want to work on I don't know racing cars more. I have no idea. But I personally feel that the greater diversity, the better. It's so much more healthy. Champion your sisters and look for places to go where you feel that you are brave enough to ask advice. And I think platforms like Every Everywoman offer exactly that. They are an open forum where you can, you can, you can just ask other people for help. And you know, we should help each other.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. There are more than 60 leaders featuring in the Leading Archive, everyone from Darren Henley from Arts Council England, Katie Bickerstaff at Marks and & Spencer, and Bernardo's Javid Khan. They talk about their biggest leadership challenges, how they got to the top of their organisations, and the advice they offer to the next generation. More details at leadingpod.com and more episodes coming soon.